right now it actually is recording. I've Great. got it pulled up. Let me get my notes. Are you going to wear those shades? I would be kind of, I, I mean, it would be kind of cool. It would freak me out. But, hey, uh, <laughs> I wish I'd had them for, you uh, had them last for week. a light sleeper. Yeah, absolutely. Those are sweet. Now I'm going to read the thing. Unless you, you want to talk, unless you want to talk more about those extraordinarily, I think they look Porsche great. Carrera foldable. Oh, they're not. Oh, they're not foldable. They look they're foldable. like cast iron. They're, they, they? they weigh like six pounds. I think if I were to get into a bicycle accident, if I still owned a bicycle because my bicycle was stolen, true, they yeah. would survive yeah. better than the rest of me. We should do a whole episode about your bike thing sometime because I think that's a fascinating digression. <laughs> Today might be a good day, <laughs> but we'll get into that. Actually, All right, yes, I'm going to read this thing now. Let's Full do Cast it. and Crew is a podcast that chooses a film sometimes unwisely, as I'm going to posit is the case this week, and goes down the rabbit hole of its IMDb full cast and crew page, mining it for surprising appearances, unlikely connections, weird trivia, strange quotes, fractured takes, and quirky off-tilter... <sighs> Quirky off-kilter digressions. And the film that we're talking about this week, Chris, is... 1992's A League of Their Own. Another movie which uh, I hadn't seen. I this haven't seen the, it either. Oh, okay. This has been such a great uh, benefit of like a good way to catch up on so things. So you haven't seen any of the movies to date that to we've date. talked about. Absolutely. Okay. Ishtar I have seen, which is on so the list for last the future. Night, but. Uh, in about two minutes in to screening the movie, I was cursing you... <sighs> Because in my mind, you had seen and loved this movie and wanted it on the list for some reason that I stayed two hours and 47 minutes through. It was two hours and seven minutes. Yeah, it might well, have felt, it like felt like two hours and 47 minutes to try and ascertain. Of course, I've refrained from texting you or emailing you anything like, ugh, or I'm hating you right now or anything of the sort, because I assumed, well, there's some, there's some point that we're arriving at here that is, is, is going to show me what Chris loves about this movie, why he wanted us to discuss it. Now I come to find out you just pluck this out of your ass because why it's directed by a woman, I think. And you wanted some representation. That was certainly part of it. Yes. I'm even, it's like, there are so many better films directed by women that we could have talked about. So I suppose this is the thing that we're going to now discover is like, what happens when we do a film that at least me, I mean, maybe you yeah. loved it. I haven't gotten to you yet, but for me, I mean, it's horrible. It's wow. it's indefensible. <laughs> this movie. Oh, I thought I was going to have some hot takes. Like for example, Tom oh. Hanks is very talented. Madonna also very talented in this movie. Yeah. I thought they were both great. You did. And are I, you being, no, ironic right now. I'm only being ironic in as much as I know they're big stars, uh, but I, I haven't consumed a lot of either of them. But okay. I was like, hey, wow, I can really see those two of the biggest stars so in, uh, in history. I enjoyed it very much. You, did, you enjoyed it very much? I okay, enjoyed this it is very gonna be great much. because I have a rage spiral oh, I'm on so, paper here. You do a good job of keeping your rage spiral yeah. contained. Well, this is the thing is I don't want to be negative. I don't want to put negativity out into the world. And anyone who takes the time to undertake a creative endeavor, I have respect and admiration yes. for because I'm aware of how all-consuming it can be. And, uh, you know, so more power to everyone. However, blame must be placed. Isn't that the line in the famous play? Um, what does it say in that play? Uh, I never saw that it's movie. It's not uh, blame, blame must, must be, be placed. No, no. I think you might be thinking of attention must be paid. Yes. Uh, from Death of a Salesman. Never saw it. You've never seen a production? Yeah, you're not that, missing much. No. Um, um, yeah, uh, blame must be placed. But that's the thing is I don't want to just dump on it, so... Let's start with you and your positive take on this film. This is not the best movie that I've ever seen, but on the other hand, it was, I thought, a very, a very entertaining and really? sturdy wow. uh, piece of Have you had a week where you stayed inside a lot or you hadn't interacted yeah, with why? a lot of people? I don't <laughs> why? know. Why? Why do you have something to do with it? <laughs> yes, it could be. You, I haven't seen were, a lot of the sound. I was concerned about 35 seconds in when Carly Simon started playing on the soundtrack. I thought, oh, this is, I, I'm in trouble here. Hey, Matt the Engineer here. So unfortunately, we don't have legal clearance to use this song that Jason has since made the ringtone for his wife. So so you're hearing this. In fact, well, when, the, when the Carly Simon song kicked in on the soundtrack, I actually think I went into perimenopause. <laughs> perimenopause? It's a state of um, that occurs to women. Peri, is, that peri, is that pre or post? Or? I think it's pre. Pre. Right. Well... Uh, <laughs> When I wrote that joke last night, I, I put the Perry part, and I wasn't sure. I didn't Google it after that, so I just Does wrote that it. Is like Perry? I'm pretty sure it's a thing. Perry. Let me look it up. Perry. 
Meno. Yeah, perimenopause. Perimenopause, or menopause transition, begins several years before menopause. It's the time when the ovaries gradually begin to make less estrogen. It usually starts in a woman's 40s, but it can start in her 30s or even earlier. Perimenopause lasts up until menopause. So yes, Chris, when Carly Simon kicked in on the soundtrack, I think I went into perimenopause. You started producing less estrogen. I started producing a lot less estrogen. (laughs) This... Well, you, you, well, I are, I would love to hear a spirited defense of the fun you had watching this movie. I, I enjoyed it very much. And I think a big part of it was one, it's, um, an interesting topic and actually it is the, an interesting topic. the very fact that it was, um, reading a little bit about where the yep. story came from and the, the choices that they made in developing the script, um, uh, I thought were interesting. Script by Babalu Mandel and Lowell Gans. Uh, as well as the two, cause it's based on a documentary. Based on a documentary, which I- about 150 times contemplated starting to watch instead of watching the remainder of the film. But I stayed with it all the way to the end. Uh, well, it was an interesting topic. It um, it tackled the idea of adapting sort of a true story in a way that I thought was somewhat unconventional, especially considering, you know, our discussions of Saturday sure. Night Live having been... Saturday Fever. Night, Saturday Night Not Live. Fever having, two different things, yeah. <laughs> been based on a on a article, mm-hmm. or perfect, which it also so never, He never knew Saturday Night Live was so interestingly set in the world of disco in the 70s now. Absolutely. I, out. Yeah. How does it still That's continue? How does it stay so current? Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought that, and I thought actually the cast was was great. And I did like the, Chris, the way that she shot a lot of the- what? I guess the funny stuff. Like I thought it. Oh I thought a lot of it Seriously? worked. Yeah, I thought she staged the things. Well, like when the um, no, yeah, she I, did not stage when, anything well. Uh, there's a scene where one of the uh, the women has to bring her son along. Yeah, and then it like cuts to the kid causing havoc on the bus. Yeah. And then being chased around yeah. by Madonna the baseball bat, I thought that was really okay. funny. Now, it was an like all the jokes were obvious, but, but sort the, of no. This is the problem. Done Chris. In a, this is the problem in that well. scene that you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, you have a bus filled with women and one man. Tom Hanks is the only man on the bus, right? Except for the bus driver who Who's throws, right. who throws a fistful of dirt and leaves. The scene is played where all the baseball players, all the women, are so annoyed at the boy. I don't know if you've been around women of the 30 women who are in their thirties or the forties, but if there's a, a toddler or a child around, they're not going to react in disgust and horror as everyone on the bus does with this kid. They're going to go, Oh, he's cute. And they're going to pick him up in their arms. And that's what parents of children do. They don't react like, let's leave this kid by the side of the road, which is what the screenplay asks them basically to when they get back on the bus, they get off. They get off the bus because it nearly, uh, nearly crashed because the kid was putting his hands over the bus driver's eyes. The women are not in their thirties and forties. I get the impression that they're in their twenties. You know, okay, so you late did, teens so and early think, so, early twenties. So women in their twenties have no no affinity for children. Yeah. <laughs> It's not so much that, but I think they can also be annoyed by the fact that the kid nearly ran them off the road on their way to the baseball game. Mm. And having been in this tour bus for a while, they're probably- What's his name? Shiler? Something on Styler? Oh, we should wait. Let's look it up. Stillwell. Stillwell. Okay. We'll get to the names later. Oh my God. Okay. I cried during the final, the like old- Are you- Serious reunion scene. You cried during that. Hey, Doris. <laughs> Dolly. Oh, oh, oh. Oh. May? All the way, May? Gee, you know what's called me that since last night. Oh, oh, I'm a married woman now. <laughs> yeah, but oh. times. Hey, girl. Look who's here. Shirley? Oh, Shirley. <laughs> Helen Haley. Oh. It's Dr. Haley now. I'm a doctor. I always knew you would be. Who's that? Oh, that's Daddy Henson. Betty Spaghetti? Hi, Betty. Best on ball play the league. 
I thought it was really sweet. Yeah. Oh, and I also my. thought they did a great job casting yeah. okay. like the old so version. I went into people. perimenopause and stopped producing estrogen. You apparently started producing estrogen. <laughs> to, I, I mean, am that very was the most awkward ending of a film with like. It was like Golden Girls times 100 in Cooperstown at the Baseball Hall of Fame, like, which, by the way, our lead character is getting inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame yeah. and her family doesn't even go. Her mother is being inducted into the most hallowed institution and, well, and the family's not even going to support her. Well, what? because that, she... I, I, well, I because she has her own, like that to me is more interesting. She has her ambivalent relationship to- The daughter? No, she, uh, Dottie. Yeah, I understand Dottie, that. The, has the an daughter is aware that Dottie's being inducted well, into the Well, she's not being inducted herself. The whole, they're opening a section to the AAPL or of whatever which it she's is. The, of which she's a part, but she only played one season out of 13 or 14 or whatever she's it is. She's attending a ceremony where her photograph, her history in the game is being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, sure. So it, it does. It okay. It just she didn't play. Just she didn't have a sweatshirt like everybody else. That I mean, I would hope when I'm inducted into the podcasting hall of fame, I would hope that my <laughs> daughter would show up for that. That's all I'm saying. I guess, and you know, maybe this is but a anyway, reflection of my aside, own upbringing that it never crossed my uh, mind that that my family. Carly would Simon was the first problem area. I mean, I like Carly Simon. I have no <laughs> issue with Carly Simon. I'm just saying it was. It's a certain choice. Then, John Lovitz. I mean. <laughs> yourself. Oh, doesn't that hurt them? Doesn't seem to. That would bruise the hell out of me. I'm Ernie Cappadino. I'm a baseball scout. You ever hear Walter Harvey makes Harvey bars? Yeah, we feed them to the cows when they're constipated. That's the guy. He's starting the girls' baseball league. So we can make a buck while the boys are overseas. Want to play? Huh? Nice retort. Tryouts are in Chicago. It's a real league, professional. Professional baseball? Mm-hmm. They'll pay you $75 a week. We only make 30 at the dairy. Well, then, this would be more, wouldn't it? To shovel dirt over the crypt that had been dug. Again, we're only about a minute 30 into the movie at this point. It was definitely a reminder of like, hey, oh, there was a time that Come on, he... you girls. Stop milking those cows. Hey, don't they enjoy that teat massage? Come on, get on the bus. That's the entirety of John Lovitz's performance yeah. in this movie. And I thought he, I mean, this is not to take away, away from your imitation of him. Were it you laughing at John Lovitz's jokes? I was laughing at John Lovitz's jokes. John Lovitz and Tom Hanks as like lifer baseball guys. I mean, it's just, I'm a big Tom Hanks fan. I like movie stars. I like big movie stars. I like broadly appealing actors like Tom Hanks. I don't care. Tom Hanks has been miscast many times in his career. This may be the most miscast I've ever seen him. For example, Tom Hanks playing... Ben Bradley in the paper thinks he's miscast in this movie. Um, or what's the other movie where he's completely? Uh, the one where he had a accent. Uh, anyone where oh, he had an accent, he's always. The, yeah, the accent's bad. <laughs> um, but he's not at all believable as a crotchety baseball lifer, let alone someone who we're told hit 598 home runs in the big leagues. He's not at all believable as a drunk. He's not at all believable as a tobacco spitter. In this movie, he can't spit tobacco. He dribbles it all over his face and all over his shoes. It's just, he can't do it. Okay. So you I thought Tom Hanks was great. I think specifically, I had the exact opposite reaction you did. Really? I don't particularly care for big movie stars that right, sort of, right. that everybody can agree on. Yeah. So to have somebody like that do something that is unexpected for mm -hmm. him, I yeah. just enjoyed. And I thought his physical clowning, those moments, because I don't associate him with that stuff, I, I thought those were so good and so alive and so surprising that I really enjoyed that. I can see that. And I think the idea of like this or this irascible old drunk to me seemed like very well-worn territory by casting somebody who is so not obviously that to me made that character a little bit more interesting than it, than it might've been if it was, I don't know, Charles Bronson. I, again, I'm not, well, I, I believe there are degrees of subtlety between Charles Bronson and Tom Hanks and who could have been a not plausible baseball lifer. But let me give you a counter example. Um, a film that I love. I love this movie and I watch this movie all the way through every time it's on Moneyball. It's a great movie. One of the great things about it is Philip Seymour Hoffman plays A's manager. Um, can't remember his name. A, the A's manager. A's manager, Philip Seymour Hoffman. No, no. Philip's. No. <laughs> it was perfect casting. It was dream casting. You know what? I feel bad for you because when you watch this movie and you're crying at the end, which you will do, 
Not that I do every time I watch the movie, <laughs> but you will be crying. I mean, if you cried at this, I will say you're going to cry. Look, it's a great do, movie. It's a I, funny movie. I like statistics. It's a baseball movie. So, yeah. Okay. But it's really about new thinking colliding with outdated modes. Yeah. And one of the great small performances in this movie, of which there are many, is Philip Seymour Hoffman playing this grizzled old lifer baseball guy who's stuck in the mud and who butts heads with Brad Pitt's. Billy Bean character, who's the the guy who comes up with this money ball philosophy, which is finding undervalued players mm-hmm. and rewarding them and giving them an opportunity, and they have great success. Philip Seymour Hoffman's not a guy you would think about as athletic or as a jock or occupying that sort of a character necessarily, but he's such a good actor mm-hmm. that he he completely embodies this, this real person um, in a way that Tom Hanks just is never believable to me as a baseball guy. I, I get what you're saying, and I and I do think that Tom Hanks playing the sort of, he's not the anti-hero, but he's just sort of like not a very good guy throughout most right. of the movie. And um, but, but the arc is so sloppy. It's like, there's no real redemption. It's like, he just stops drinking and everything is great. And I, well, you know, well, then he's a great manager. That, I don't even t- know that, he, does he stop drinking? Well, I, yeah, I don't think the whole scene on the bus where like Gina Davis gives him a Coke. Yeah, and he enjoys that moment of real connection, but I don't know. Oh no! I, I think I the impli- oh no. The implication is pretty clear that through the course of the movie, he starts out drunk and not caring and not taking the job seriously, and then he kind of sobers up, straightens up, and starts taking it seriously. Oh God! See, I thought that's an arc that occurs. I I would have put it the other way that he starts taking it more seriously, and that gives him a little bit more life, which he probably drinks less or whatever because he has a little bit more of a focus. Maybe this is one of the things that I liked about it: the sort of drinking arc, like that would. That was in. That is an easy signifier of somebody's mm-hmm. personal growth, and I don't think that it made. It, it didn't do that easy significa- signifying signification of it. It didn't do it. There was that one scene, but to me, that seemed like a moment of connection, which was part of his his sort of appreciating what he had lost, and just to go back of him being a grizzled lifer or whatever. Uh-huh. One of the things that is so different. Um, these were relatively young people. You and mean, he was- In the movie? In the movie. Like that there, he was also 10 years after his, roughly 10 years sure. after the height of his career, yeah. which he lost to drinking. But you also don't get the sense that like he lost his career to drinking after a long career. He was somebody who was promising that was doing very well and then got derailed mid-career by his- I have a great, have his, a great segue right now. As you're talking about take it, take the, it. the Hanksian character being derailed mid-career, let me just remind you that this film comes on the tail of the following string of films in Tom Hanks's <laughs> career. Turner and Hooch. Yeah, best Joe movie. versus the Volcano. Love that movie. Bonfire of the Vanities. Love that movie. And A League of Their Own. I mean, that may be the best, the best streak. uninterrupted streak of bad films that you could name from a box office star of Hanks's magnitude. Turner and Hooch, Joe versus the Volcano, Bonfire of the Vanities, A League of Their Own. Joe versus the Volcano, written and directed by John Patrick Shanley. I thought it was by Joe Dante. John Patrick Shanley. Yeah. Really? Why do I think that was Joe Dante? <sighs> you know, the mind works If only there was a website that contained ways. all this information... Oh, it's a podcast yeah. about the sound of typing. <laughs> no? Joe versus the volcano. John Patrick Shanley. Weird, but isn't John Patrick straight. Shanley the guy that wrote the play with the priest and the yes, nuns? Yes, and the, exactly. That's what I'm saying. What the hell he is he doing writing Joe versus the volcano? Man, I don't know. But he is. A oh, good I saw player. it on Broadway. And it I also incredible. Th- the volcano was great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, what? How did that come about? I want to know. Well, this. he probably. I think he had also written. Um, he wrote Moonstruck, I believe. Joe versus actually, I've never seen Joe versus the volcano. So, so what do you not? Uh, I remember enjoying great. it. Really, I remember enjoying it. When a hypochondriac like- learns that he's dying, he accepts an offer to throw himself in a volcano at a tropical island, and along the way there, learns to truly live. Yeah, Lloyd Bridges, Robert Stack, Abe Vigoda, Dan Hadaya, Amanda Plummer, Ossie Davis, John Conrad Pokron. I'm just throwing that in there. Is this why Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are a thing? In all the subsequent movies? Well, in the one subsequent movie? Uh, is that well, why they're together? One subsequent in- movie. They have, they have When Harry Met Sally. Oh, no, that's, that's, uh, not, that's, that's not- Billy Crystal. 
I can, I'll cut that out. <laughs> yeah, but that's what, I, that's what I meant in the subsequent ones. But you've got mail. Right. But before, in Seattle. Seattle, I was about to say, like, that's, yeah. Is that why they're together? Because they're beloved from Joe versus the Volcano? I mean, I think they were both beloved at two of America's sweethearts putting them together. But I'm saying this is the first time they were put together. Yeah. But it's not like but I never the next year. I thought the first to, time they were together would have been um, Sleepless in Seattle. Or when Harry met Sally. Is he in that? <laughs> is, wait, is wait, is Meg Ryan in that too? I thought that was that was Tom Hanks and That was uh, Tom Hanks and Farrah Sally Fawcett. Field. <laughs> interesting thing about Farrah Fawcett. Yes. Uh is that this movie that I'm thinking of? The interesting it, thing? Is it about the sign? Oh, is it like if you're thinking oh, of the, the shampoo Penny commercial with Penny Marshall? Yeah. Yeah. Did you read that? Yes. Tell us the anecdote. If you remember, please the tell me the anecdote. The anecdote that I read was that uh, Penny Marshall was cast in a um, in a shampoo commercial. Right. And the thing, there, she was cast as a woman with uh, stringy hair. Yes. And then Farrah Fawcett was cast as the woman with like bouncy, beautiful hair. But when they were lighting it and sort mm-hmm. of prepping the commercial, they, I guess the stand-ins or perhaps yes. the women themselves had like signs that said like- It was the stand-ins, yeah. Homely girl. Yeah. And like pretty girl. girl. Yeah. And Farrah Fawcett took the sign that said homely and <laughs> and crossed it out and put plain girl. Yeah. Which I appreciate the gesture, but. <laughs> I know. It's such a great anecdote because I'm like, it's a great gesture. But I, when I'm reading this anecdote, and I'm thinking, oh, and it says, Farrah Fawcett took a marker. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be so great. She's going to write something like. Like just you know, as important. Just as important girl. or or gorgeous or pretty inside or whatever. But no, she just writes. Plain. Wow. Thanks, Which I guess, Farrah. Is, I guess is better. I, Hollywood, man. It's a cutthroat. Absolutely. Yeah. A cutthroat world out <laughs> there. Like, Penny, I want you to feel better. <laughs> but, but just know, just know who's, who's I want boss. You to feel better, who's but not as good as I feel being Farrah. Full cast and crew is brought to you by Chuckler. Chuckler features award-winning original web series from social media's funniest comedians, as well as the best stand-up comedy, parodies, fake commercials, and interviews with your favorite comedy writers and creators. Find us and like us on Facebook. Chuckler. Original comedy. Delivered daily. Kit is the worst character in the history of a movie. Oh, gosh. I See, mean, I- this, this, this person is so spoiled and narcissistic and un- likable throughout the entire movie. And yet we're supposed to feel for her. Please, daddy. I got to get out of here. I'm nothing here. Oh Oh, gosh. You're nothing here in your beautiful, idyllic pastoral farm life where life is simple. And the only person who's really good and enjoyable and watchable for me in the movie. Well, there's several of them. Gina Davis is great. Yeah. She's, uh, I love Gina Davis. I think she's interesting weird. She really conveyed a sense of strength and kind Mm -hmm. of stoicism as a person, which made it all the more infuriating when this ridiculous screenplay in the end has her leave the team before the World Series game. She's going to go home and leave the team because her husband came back from the war. That is completely out of character with the entire person we've just been shown for two hours and 47 minutes prior to that. She would never abandon the team. She would stay with the team for one or two more days and then go back home. This is the problem I have with this screenplay. It's like so many moments, it just like does something so indefensible. For example, Kit. The first scene in the movie, Kit can't hit, right? She's only playing in the league because Gina Davis is a superstar athlete, Right. I don't think that's true. You don't think that's true. The whole I, John Lovett says, if you get her to come, you can come too. Right. But oh, I think, sorry. I thought you were talking about the, because it does start with them in a game. Yes. And you've and you, you learned the hit. thing that Kit can hit because she keeps going for the high ones. Correct. Because she's too headstrong. Right. But I don't think the implication is that she's like a terrible player who has nothing going for her. Well, I would think it is because John Lovett is saying, I don't need you. I want her. Then in the penultimate moment, and I'm probably using that word wrong. Does penultimate mean the big moment or does it mean the moment one, before the moment? Well, why is that even a term? Moment. Why do we need a term for the moment before the big moment? It's the bottom of the ninth, two outs. You're down by one run. You're going to put your weakest hitter up in that spot. It's just, it's against what you would do in a real baseball game. And it's part of the flaw of the screenplay. You swap that hitter out. That's what you do in baseball. You well, don't just let to, the person I admit, I'm really... This movie is pretty light on actual baseball. Another problem I have with it, but yes. And yet I was still a little confused by 
what little baseball they did have, I, I it was baffling okay. to me. Baffling. Um, Got it. Well, maybe baffling's going a bit far, but I have to admit, I did get confused by some of it. But like the whole, you know, pitch the ball, hit the ball, catch the ball thing. Or what, what part of it was confusing, really? I wish I could remember. Uh, there was certainly why. Like why? why? Why do all this? What do, you, what do you? Oh, like why play baseball? Yeah, you people are wasting your time. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I really liked about it was that I thought the characters were complicated. Like, for example, Lori Petty's oh character of Kit. Uh, I thought that dynamic of feeling under the um, in the shadow of uh, a sibling like that, and this push and pull of wanting her to be there, but also wanting her to let her alone. I thought that was such a like that to me seemed like a real, the kind of real contradictory emotion somebody would have in that kind of situation mm-hmm. of feeling both affectionate, but competitive sure. and her, th- the contradictory ways that she acts. They, to me, that didn't seem like a flaw in the screenplay so much as like, like that's a real thing that people do, aren't always acting in ways that they are necessarily of proud okay. of. And so that was the thing that I liked about her. And I think conversely with Dottie, Dottie, Gina Davis. She is defined by having this talent, but this is a thing that she is, she's a reluctant hero in the sense of she doesn't really care about this that much. And she sort of gets into it because, and she's sort of dragged along by circumstance, Mm -hmm. but is the thing that's always pulling her back is wanting this home life and wanting to just sort of settle down Mm -hmm. with her husband. And again, which whatever you may think of that uh, politically, that's, that is set up. And I think, um, the fact that when he then comes home. So you didn't find it a contradiction that she would leave the team prior to the championship game to go home. Cause it's just no, he came home after, not only did he come home. It's lazy writing. It's, it's, it's two guys in a room like saying to each other, how do we create something out of the nothing we've created to, to date here? Yeah. Which you and I are very familiar with. That's what we're doing here right now. (laughs) I don't want to defend the screenplay as being better than it is. But on the other hand, I thought the places that it was enjoyable, the places that it lived were the character moments sort of between those big things. And yes, I think it allowed some of those plot mechanics. I think think Gina Davis and and Lori Petty are great and and have good chemistry together. I think they're hampered here by a screenplay that doesn't allow them to be as great together as they could. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that... um, I think that Madonna, um, Rosie O'Donnell, they're very funny. Um, yeah. Like, they're, they're great comic relief. Um, there's a little throwaway moment when Madonna is coming up to bat in the championship game, and she kicks the opposing catcher's mask away from home plate because the catcher has it off. It's great. I just love it. Um, but, man, boy, it's few and far between. Um, Marlo is great who's played as like the ugly duckling, shy, reticent one. That actress. Uh, She's great. What is she was fantastic. And I see her uh, picture on IMDb. Megan Cavanaugh. Megan Cavanaugh. She looks so familiar, but I <laughs> looked at her credits. I don't think I've seen any of this. You never saw Miss Congeniality 2, Armed and Fabulous, Chris? Because uh, if you like the ending of this movie, I think that might be in your Oh, your really? Do they? <laughs> <laughs> she is super familiar looking. Trying to look at some of her, but all of these things like I've I haven't seen. She's any in that of these. darn cat. Bob Lou Mandel was written by Lowell Gans and Bob Lou Mandel, who are old school, you know, seventies, eighties writing partners. They who, did Splash. They did Splash. Um, they met, I think, or one of their first writing jobs was on Happy Days. Huh. Now, yeah, it's a very <sighs> incestuous, uh, yeah, little community. Tracy Reiner. Uh, any relation to Bob Reiner? I don't think so. Cause yes. I was, I was, what? didn't you read the full, this is yeah, why we're I read here. that her this last name was actually the, Henry. It said that she was born with the, a different name. Yeah. She's the daughter of Penny Marshall from her first marriage to Michael Henry, but she took the name of her mother's <laughs> oh. second husband, Rob Reiner. Oh, whoops. You know, sometimes families do that. It's like Shaq oh, says, Phil is my father. Do you know the basketball star Shaq? Oh, um, he's famously as a stepfather from the movie Steel. It was based on the death of Superman storyline from the middle of the 90s. There was a guy, John Henry Irons, built, he was a big Superman fan, and he builds this uh, armor. Wait, this uh, isn't a fighting robots movie with Hugh Jackman. No, that's (laughs) that's real Steel. Get me anything you can to build a fighting robot. That's one of the great lines in any movie trailer. I don't know if you (laughs) can call that. (laughs) But when we put this up, we're going to post that. Anything I could use to put a fighting robot together. Boy, Hugh Jackman, for a, for such a talented guy, he's got a lot of... Uh, actually, yeah, lot I, of I never saw Real Steel. I heard it was actually really good. I heard it was actually really good, but but I don't know. I, I think that's the kind of thing that studios... I think there's know, a line in the trailer that. where there's like a little boy, right? Isn't there sort of like a little boy yeah. who's looking for a father figure? And Hugh Jackman... Aren't they all? ...becomes... <laughs> 
becomes a father figure. Yeah. And the boy's I think like, he's also his father. Oh, maybe his. <laughs> I think that might be the problem. I thought maybe they were building. I think his the dramatic arc is like, parts. yeah, I'm looking for a looking for a father figure because this this also, old Hope Davis drunk is in, isn't. Uh, uh, Hope Davis is in. The, oh yeah, he's he, doing he, it. He's like a drunk. Yeah. Oh, but then they come together. It been Tom Hanks. They come together out of the building fighting, build robots. fighting robots. Yeah. And the little boy, I think, in the trailer says something like, "How can I can I help, Dad, or something?" And he says, "Yes." Get me anything you can to build a fighting robot. I don't know why. It just always strikes me as a great trailer line. Um, anyway, I don't well, know how we got onto listen, that. Listen, it's also a difficult thing for like a boy to be like, okay, I guess what does that mean? Uh, like, would a, would a can help? As I said, son, anything. Anything. That would help. Yeah. Think outside build the box. a fighting robot. I mean, it's like, I can understand the frustration. If I knew the answer, I would yeah, tell no you. No wonder he But I bomb. don't. Oh, I guess what I was going to say is it is filled, even though it is a... Um, a film about women there. A lot of the supporting character men are great character actors in some ways. David Strathairn. David Strathairn was great. Strathairn. Is Strathairn. Strathairn? Strathairn? No, it's Strathairn. I know, but please with your acting pronunciation. Um, can you name correct another word? Now David Strathairn. Yes. Is in an iconic baseball movie. Can you, can you name what it is? Eight man out. Oh, impressive. Have you seen it? No. Oh my God, it's such a vastly superior baseball. I mean, it's such a vastly superior movie. Baseball is almost incidental, but it's a it's a really good baseball movie and it's a really good historical movie about a true thing that happened. Yeah. Like this. Although this, again, this is like, I don't think C. Dottie Hinson, this is highly fictionalized, yeah. which was something that I actually did like about it. Did you see the Del Close? Oh, you, am I stealing? Yeah, am I stealing? You're stealing all, your, all the sorry, thunder. I'm sorry, Absolutely, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, no, okay. don't be sorry. I mean, it's gonna come out sometimes. These are the things. That, this is what I spent my time on. I did tune out of the movie for about a half hour, somewhere in the back half before the championship game, and and it was playing. But I was I was watching other things related to the film and going down other. You were second screening. I was second screening, and part of the second screening I was doing was like. There was some scene where the owner is there and I, the guy was interesting. This Now, this is yeah. kind of an interesting thing because I don't even know if he had any lines. Nope. But when he was on screen, I thought, that guy's more interesting than the random person doing doing nothing on screen. And so I looked him up and it was Del Close. Yes. You know, father of improv, improv, improvisational comedy. Yes. Improv. I guess improv. You could, I was about to say, you just, yeah, I don't need to say the whole thing. It, you don't have to make it more. I'm not really up on all these showbiz terms that you guys. Oh, because like you said, he is yeah. so alive and such a. Um, Very interesting. Such an interesting guy. Uh, also a memorable turn. Of, I'm sure that you remember his turn in um, The Untouchables, where he plays the alderman who tries to bribe Elliot Ness. I did not know that was him. Oh, yeah. The alderman who tries the, to bribe Elliot Ness. At one point, he has like an envelope with uh, with money, and he like leaves it on the desk. Oh, and he's I don't like, "What's this?" And he's like, Bleh. "I don't remember that." I came up to congratulate you on a job well done. Share your good fortune on such a lovely day. What's that? <laughs> what is that, Mr. Ness? You're an educated man. Let me pay you the compliment of being blunt. There is large, a large and popular business which you are causing dismay. Why don't you just cross the street and let things take their course? You tell your master that we must agree to disagree. You're making a mistake. Yeah, well, I've made them before. I'm beginning to enjoy them. You fellows are untouchable. Is that the thing? No one can get to you? Yeah. And you talk a pawn. Hey, everyone can be gotten. And so, you know, I lived in Chicago for a while and I did do improv and actually was on a team that he was, you were. rather I was in a class that he was teaching and a team that he was putting together, but then he became very ill before we ever, mm. um, you would have been good at that. Uh, yeah. Well, you probably were good at it. I, I don't I'd mean, like to, to I don't mean so. to imply that you weren't. I'm just saying <laughs> the road not taken. I'm saying, I don't mean to say you would have been good. I'm saying I can imagine knowing you that you'd be very good at that. And it felt very, very good because I thought he was, he was so, um, very sort of an, an inspiring figure and yeah. an interesting guy. And in the same way that he's so alive on screen, so, mm -hmm. on screen, so too when like teaching a class, even when he was old mm -hmm. and in physical pain and stuff like that, um, there was still something so particular. And it was very, like I said, inspiring. He's the kind of person that to me, you read so much about him, it's hard to get a sense of the real person. Because he was, uh, he also but did a lot he, of drugs. Right. Um, he also wrote a comic book called Wasteland where he co-wrote it with somebody, I think it was John Ostrander, but I, uh, I might have the name wrong, mm -hmm. but somebody who had, and who in the, I remember reading in the first issue, the guy's like, let me tell you a little bit about Del Close. Like he's this crazy da da da. Mm -hmm. And so this, this 
comic book writer had, I guess, met him and found him so fascinating. And so they ended up doing this collaboration together huh. to make this horror anthology comic that did not last very long. Is it good? But it had, it is good. I mean, a few of the stories in it are indelible. Oh, and so they it's an anthology a lot of great, series. So each episode, each each issue has some number of stories in it? Each issue has, I think, three, two or three stories. And I think in the ones that I've read, they all, the third one would always be actually an adaptation of one of Dell's dreams. And oh, so it would be like, I remember one thing where he's like weirdly roller skating and being chased by something <laughs> and uh, falls through a hole. Like, <clears throat> right. Yeah. Um, but just, just now, a fascinating where, where, guy. What were you doing in Chicago? I went to school in Chicago or in Evanston, which is oh, okay. just north of Chicago. I don't think I knew that. And then went to, uh, yeah, I went to Northwestern University, just like somebody in this movie, but I forget. <laughs> somebody memorable in this film. <laughs> oh, Gary, Gary Marshall is a very famous uh, uh, Northwestern alum. Did he go to Northwestern? I thought I he was like so. from the streets of the Bronx. Why not both? You know what I thought would be a good documentary topic? You know this street that they grew up on, the Marshalls? I don't know if you read about this. No. Um, I think it's the Bronx. <clears throat> it's like famously a street where like Paul Simon, Gary Marshall, like six other Titanic entertainment figures mm -hmm. all grew up on this same street and went to this same school. Mm -hmm. um, you know what? Now that I think about it, I think there already is a documentary about this school. I was, oh, yeah, he did go to Northwestern. Um, I saw this great. It'd be a great documentary. It'd be a great documentary that Which I realize I now that I saw. That's how a lot of great ideas get made in show business. Yeah, you know? it's not like there've only been like one documentary about World right. War II. You know, speaking of Gary Marshall, um, I'm not a huge fan of Gary Marshall's work as a director. However, I'm of the opinion, you know, people always say that like um, Alec Baldwin is the greatest cameo of all time yeah. in um, Glengarry Glen Ross. Mm -hmm. uh, I think rivaling that cameo is Gary Marshall's cameo in Albert Brooks's film, Lost in America. It's been a long time. I, have to admit, I don't remember his cameo. But you have seen it. Yeah. Okay. Um, he plays the casino owner. Don't you remember the scene where um, Julie, I can't remember the name of the actor. Haggerty. Julie, Hag Julie Haggerty. Haggerty wakes up in the middle of the night, runs down to the casino and loses the entire nest egg Right. Uh -huh. And then comes back and tells Albert Brooks's character about it. And Albert Brooks goes down to talk to Gary Marshall as the casino manager. And since Albert Brooks's character is this, you know, ad man from Los Angeles, he tries to pitch famously Gary Marshall on this concept of like, wouldn't it be great if you gave us back the money? And Gary Marshall is so brilliantly deadpan. It's like, that's not how it works out here, sir. We, we don't give back the money. And Al Brooks is like, yes, that's, that's why I'm saying. It would be brilliant. Think of the billboard. It's, it's just a great cameo. Um, and he's just one of those guys. He's so good as an actor in these funny little things. And yeah. then yet he makes the most, the, the most broad movies possible. But he's like a very sly and subtle, funny actor in a bunch of things. Yeah. Which I always enjoyed him whenever I saw him. May he rest in peace. What else did I see him in relatively recently that he was? Um, I'm looking at his Bojack. Well, that's a voice. Yeah. <laughs> Hot in Cleveland, maybe? Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You know, I've seen Golden Girls. I don't need Two to see Two and a Half Men. Um, uh, it must have been Chips 99. <laughs> Chris always gets me with his deadpan humor. Um, yeah, just like Gary you Marshall. Just got me. You just got me again. Just like Gary Marshall. Wait, is oh, Chips 99 know? a thing? Uh, chips, something is on, chips on his like IMDb the motorcycle page? cop? Yeah. Chips? Where's that? It's, it was made in 1998. That I'm interested in. I guess it was an attempt to, uh, oh, oh, they did bring back the original cast, both um, Eric Chips Estrada and- TV movie. Larry Wilcox. They tried to just wow. sort of reboot Directed it. Directed by John Kassar, who I'm going to guess is the son of famed film producer Mario Kassar? Or what? the brother? Right? Weren't we just Let's talking see. about Mario Kassar? Right. Day? I was going to say, wasn't he the? Wasn't he an actor in? A, oh no, he's, no, no. He's he's the yes, producer, the light sleeper the, producer. Uh, Carolco, 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 Carolco. <laughs> Although apparently here it doesn't say he's related to him at all. Does say he was born in Malta? Has a strong friendship. That's what I love about these um, IMDb page. Has a strong friendship with Twenty Four Star and fellow Canadian Kiefer Sutherland. After Sutherland won the 2006 SAG Award for Best Actor in a Drama, and who can forget that, <laughs> he gave the trophy to Kassar as a sign of his appreciation. That's a strong <laughs> friendship, Chris. Yeah, that's also, that's an odd thing. Like, I don't want this. Here, you, yeah, it's just you, sort of like, 
So you, you go into John Kassar's house and you're like, wow, this is a great place, John. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Oh my God. Did you win a SAG award? Oh uh, no. Um, that actually is Kiefer Sutherland's SAG award. Yeah. Oh. To me, it seems more like that doesn't, that's, that's more like you didn't do something great. But it's passive aggressive. It's passive aggressive. It's like a reminder. Yeah. I am better than you. John Kassar, I think should rethink his strong friendship. Um, well, but chips 99 <laughs> back to that. Uh, I'm going to bet you Chips 99 is better than A League of Their Own, even though you removed What a hater. No, again, I don't want to be a hater, but I think that- And yet, here you are hating. I just think that when we're talking about films, we have to be truthful and we have to be honest. And truthfully and honestly, it's a bad movie. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the dirty dozen meets the fly with little Spider-Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters, and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again, but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them, as part of Project Behemoth. Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comixology today. Um, I actually want to go and re-watch some Laverne and Shirley because... Uh, this is my era. You were not alive in the Laverne and Shirley on TV era, probably. I mean, I do remember seeing it on but, TV. Yeah, but I mean, they'd but already I mean, moved to California by then. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> that will. It's difficult because there was a really big falling out between um, the two. Uh, I was reading about that. The two actors. Um, but anyway, like a big part of my life was watching Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley when it was on, like when these were on ABC. Um, but I have a sneaking suspicion that if I go back and watch some episodes, I'm going to be disappointed in that my childhood memory is that it's like comedically so good on a level with like the Lucille Ball show or, you know, those, that type of female comedic artistry. Mm -hmm. But I just remember how good she was as a comic foil and actor, even going back to when she was on The Odd Couple, which was mm -hmm. like something I was watching in repeats while home from, from school in the afternoons. Right. But such a great comic actress and so, you know, like a thing that existed and probably still exists, I guess, in Hollywood and TV, which is like sort of the the against, not against type, but you know what I mean? Like she's not supposed to be the pretty girl. Right. Um, but she was so funny and so sharp and human and mm -hmm. like really warm. And so I was like, I got to watch some Laverne and Shirley episodes, but I'll probably watch them and it's probably just like bad. Maybe not. I don't know. And Squiggy is in A League of Their Own. Yes. So obviously a close personal relationship with David Lander. Well, I guess, and uh, Lenny was not. Lenny was not. So I guess, uh, but he was, of course, in, tough. in This is Spinal Tap, which he Rob was. Reiner directed. Correct. So I guess they the former friends. The when former they... Mr. Penny Marshall. Penny Marshall. Exactly. So I guess it they each took small, one of, one took Lenny, one took Squiggy. Squiggy. I will, I will grant you that the, the story itself is hackneyed. is hackneyed, but I think the moments in between it, the sort of things there that are real that joined, there within. are real moments of, of humanity. And I think that's what makes it shine. And that's probably, I think you're just saying credit. that because Carly Simon started singing on the soundtrack and you thought, oh, I'm supposed to feel now. Well, I will say not cue emotion. N the, it, I mean, the subtlety is like, oh, exact bam, opposite. I was thinking like, I know Madonna, no, you in the face. I, I had the exact opposite thing. I was more like. This sounds kind of, kind of cheesy. Yeah. Uh, in the opening credits, I'm also like, Madonna's in your movie. When is she going to perform well, she a song at the end? Yeah, that was my playground. Well, I was about to, not wow. only is it like you're really sandbagging by leaving the only Madonna song till the <laughs> till the closing <laughs> till credits. The closing credits when everyone's but, already leaving like, their seats. It was yeah. a, I know playground is in the title, but you should have given it a listen because like that was. Is playground in the title? It's this used to be my playground. Oh, I thought you is meant the, the movie. song? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, is in no. the title of the song. So Madonna isn't going to give us clearance for this song. However, that didn't stop Chris from using it as the background music for his high school memory slideshow. I enjoyed this movie so little that when the '80s kind of drum machine uh, reverb <laughs> drenched kind of Madonna, but you know it has that that slow vibe Madonna start. That was like one of the only times in the movie where I sort of took a breath and thought, oh, I'm in good hands here. Wait. I'm about to hear some 80s pop, which was- Oh, wait. So that. you're saying it's in the credits that you were finding like, ah, now I can yeah, really get it. I finally, <laughs> I was like, movie. it's the first thing that worked for me. Well, they got the credits, right? The, the scrolling is good. It's it's in the right timing with the song. Like, that worked pretty well. Um, I wanted to ask you about the telegram scene. This telegram scene is another- 
part of the writing of the screenplay where I just fell apart watching this thing. I mean, the guy comes in and it, I can just think of like Babalu Mandel and Lowell Gans sitting in their writer's room. And it's like, rather than just playing the scene straight and the guy comes in and has a telegram and delivers the telegram to the unfortunate woman whose husband has been killed in a war. And they write this bumbling clownish sequence where the guy can't find the name on the telegram. And it's not played dramatically for anyone who hasn't seen the movie. I got a telegram from one of you ladies from the War Department. Let's see. Boy, I hate these. These are the worst. The least the army could do is send someone personally until your husband's dead. Darn, I had the name right here. Well, now I gotta go back and get this straightened out. Sorry. Hey, just give me the telegram. I can't. I don't have a name on the checklist. Just give me the telegram. Hey, this is official. This is from the War Department. Come on. That's official business. I'm coming. Where did I write that name? I can't. Oh, gosh, gee willikers. I mean, it's just so insane. Jason, I will grant you that that was a misstep. Uh, you're, just, you're a very forgiving person, Chris, and that's part of why this works between <laughs> us, because you have a lot more room in your heart for this stuff. Um, to me, I just kept thinking during that scene, I thought, wow, Babalu Mandel and Lowell Gantz must have a very large safe. And in that safe, there must be envelopes and photographs and compromat. And that can be the only reason why they were allowed to write so many. But it's just like, that's but fundamental. But I do wonder if there was some reason why doing it. Like, is that meant to no. show, to display Jimmy Dugan, Tom Hanks's... Humanity? Sort of, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to... Wow. I'm not going to go to the mat defending that scene. Uh, but you're going to throw the mat out on the floor and make sure it's kind of tidied up. Yeah, absolutely. Like I'll, I'll walk around <laughs> okay. the perimeter of okay. the mat, you know? All right. You know, listen, <laughs> I can see that. I, I, okay. Listen, I guess your point is, is that he does do something human in that moment. And maybe up until then we haven't seen that. I'm pretty sure we haven't. So maybe you're right. That's why. So in, in your defense of the scene, the scene is written that way to point out the jarring nature of this kind of idiot who can't, just deliver the telegram. He can't do something that's obviously going to be the most profound moment of someone's life. And he doesn't have his shit together. And Tom Hanks finally steps up and cuts through all the nonsense. Yes. Takes the telegram. And that's a, that's a moment of humanity for him. Which I, I, I think is also in some ways sort of a, a metaphor. And one of the things that I do like about the movie is the way that it does treat sexism. It's sort of such an ever present thing and the way that the women handle it as an ever present mm -hmm. yeah, thing. That's true. As opposed to kind of ahead of its time in that way. I think so. Yeah. Pen to Penny Marshall's credit yeah. to, to weave it in and integrate true. it as such an ever present thing. They, they have like defense mechanisms to deal with it. That's, it that's the so best. That's exactly yes. the word that, that is true. That is a good thing. About and it. Yeah. Um, this scene is sort of the quintessential thing of it because it shows that this is a systemic problem that does not look at these women's lives. They are just the afterthought of sure. this soldier that had died and that there's no consideration of their inner life. And this indifferent system grinds okay. them up. And Tom Hanks's characters Man, you you growing could, you could sell you could sell Hollywood on a new Babalu Mandel against yeah. screenplay <laughs> because that's a pretty good defense of what might also just be a incredibly poorly written scene. Music by Hans Zimmer. Interesting. Uh, I don't remember any incidental music other than Madonna or I remember the lack of Madonna. <laughs> also, I read that the Madonna's, the one Madonna song actually never even made it to the soundtrack yeah. because of like <laughs> contractual. contractual problems. So it's kind of like you get Madonna. Now, is this Madonna's first movie role or was she? I think no, Desperately, Desperately Seeking, Seeking Susan, Susan was, was before yeah. this. That's a good movie. But yeah, um, this Madonna, she was. She was good in this movie. She was funny. I mean, she was perfect in this part. Yeah. And, and her and Rosie were great together. Anyway, Madonna was also in Vision Quest. Forget, Remember. That I did see was- uh, That's a great movie. Is that uh, with- um, Harold Matthew Becker. Modine? Yes. Linda Fiorentino, Harold Becker. Oh, that's a great movie. When I say great, I mean great in an 80s sense. Right. Isn't that where she sings Crazy For You? I love that song. I do too. A high school wrestler in Spokane, Washington, has trouble focusing on his training regimen when a beautiful young drifter takes up residence in his home. Mm -hmm. That's Linda Fiorentino. I think if a drifter took up residence <laughs> in my home, I would also be a little distracted. Beautiful young drifter. That's not really a thing. Yeah. Drifters tend to well, sort I guess that's smell thing. like old infected wounds. God, Crazy For You is such a good song. Yeah. Maybe you can play a little of it here 
without us getting sued. Hey, Matt the Engineer again. Uh, we're not allowed to play crazy for you, again, for the same legal reasons that we don't have clearance for it. Interestingly, though, this is the first song that Madonna was nominated for a Grammy for. Anyway, back to the guys. And Harold Becker did uh, Harold Vision Becker's Quest. such a great 80s... Sea of Love. Uh, 80s director. Mal- yeah. You know, um, like, I could get into, like, a Harold Becker retrospective. Um, Malice, Sea of Love, is City Malice, Hall. Is that the one with Alec Baldwin and uh, yes. Nicole Kid- Kidman? That's the one where Alec Baldwin has that crazy line, um, <laughs> I am God. Remember that? Yes. He's the surgeon. Um, it, it's so cheesy, but good. Um, City Hall. I love City Hall. Really? I do. I mean, I, haven't I seen love it, it in, a, in a, I love it in the way that I love a lot of these movies written by Paul Schrader. I've just never heard anybody talk about it. Oh, like it's good. You should um, see it. It's a, it's a good gritty kind of eighties, New York criminal justice movie. Yeah. Even though it's 1996 feels, it feels, I guess 1996 feels like the eighties to me now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which is scary. <laughs> wow. Harold Becker also directed The Onion Field, which is a great movie um, based on the Joseph Wambaugh book. Have you ever seen that? Mm-mm. James Woods. It's one of his kind of early James Woods movies before he- Before he became, became a nut. An insane Trump-loving right-wing nut. Um, you've never seen The Onion Field. Uh-uh. See, these are movies that like when you're my age, and I'm probably, what, 10 years older than you? Be kind and say yes. I was about to say, <laughs> sure, I'll, I'll take that. Don't, don't say it's 20. Anyway, these are the movies, Onion Field. That's a movie that like we would watch in high school as part of my group of friends for some reason, because we, we, we knew these were good movies that were released, you know, four, five, six, seven years before we were watching them, which I think is hopefully not a bygone rite of passage, because I watched so many movies that way, it feels like, in our group of friends in high school that I'm grateful for. Yeah. That we weren't just watching- you know, I'm not going like to de- contemporary, I'm, whatever. Yeah, was I'm not going to denigrate superhero movies, but I'm just going to say, I, I'm glad that in 1986, 1987, I was, I was lucky enough to fall into a group of friends where someone, it wasn't me would say, Hey, let's watch the onion field, yeah. you know, which is just a great movie. I think with, um, with us, with my, with my friends, it would sometimes say like old Scorsese sure. things, um, that, it, but it's the same kind of thing of things that like something a little bit different. And yes, like you said, that is, I wonder what the sort of, um, hopefully, now what my, you know, what my nephew still is going but, to But you know, school. they have access to everything. I mean, if you think about it, when I'm talking about like someone had to go to Blockbuster or whichever video store we would go to in that era and rent the movie, bring it home, be responsible for returning it. Yeah. You know. Rewind. <laughs> be kind, rewind. <laughs> but I wouldn't have come to those things on my own. Yes. You know, I needed friends to suggest and bring these things in. And I'm grateful for them sort of having the taste at the time to expose me to films like this. And other right, ones that we watched kind of, I, we, some of them we watched almost, not ironically, but we watched them because um, they were they were heightened. They were over the top, and even though they were dramas. One of them that's like that, uh, there's a Sean Penn movie with Christopher Walken. Out, is that At Close Range, I think? Yes. We, we were like, connoisseurs of at close range, which has so many kind of hilarious, not hilarious. It's a really heavy movie. Like father, like son, like hell, man, the dialogue scenes between Chris Walken and Sean Penn and Chris Penn, who plays Sean Penn's brother, Chris Walken plays this like swaggering, no good, ne'er do well, muscle car driving Southern dad with sunglasses, very much like the ones you're sporting today. (laughs) And, you know, that walk-in delivery that, you know, generations of actors imitate. And he has this scene where he's he's bragging to Sean Penn about his prowess as a criminal enterprise in the spanning this town that they live in. And his name is like Walter White or something. And he says, uh, I'm known everywhere. Back roads, how is Walter White? Everyone knows me. You know, these we would watch these movies and we would laugh at that scene, but at the same time, we were like moved and kind of blown away by yeah. the powerful father-son dynamics that were going on. Yeah. So it's kind of like watching things on a couple different levels, I guess. Sure. Um, which I wonder if this is true for you. So you were a child of the 90s. Late 80s, I'd, you know, I'd be I'd 15 in, uh, what, 79. 
Okay. Because I was going to say- or 89. Because I was going to say part of, part of, I think, what was going on in my group of friends, and I'm wondering if it was the same for you, at the time that I was a teenager in the 70s and 80s, it was a time when popular culture around us, we considered lame. So popular music, we thought sucked. We were like mocking everything. We were holding ourselves apart from. And and I think part of watching some of these movies that not, it was, these were not movies that I was finding. These were movies that other people in my scene of friends would bring in and say, hey, we should watch this. This is really good. But I think that might have been part of it. And I wonder now that maybe that divide doesn't quite exist so much anymore, either because everyone kind of accepts that everything is out there. Whereas in the 80s, it was kind of a moment where you sort of felt like, well, pop culture that that's that's easily available to us kind of sucks. The movies suck. The, the music sucks. But this stuff over here is where the cool stuff is. I think that's probably going to be a-, a That's a truth for all generations. Group. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That at specifically that age, 14, 15, 16, 17, because you're on the cusp of adulthood wanting right. to sort of quest further anyway. And I think that probably starts with this idea of wanting to look a little bit farther. Mm-hmm. Further? Further? Farther? Sure. Either. Further? Either farther? or. Either. Either, either. either. Yeah. Either. <laughs> Yeah, like, um, then yeah. what's then what's in front of then you? Then what is you. that's just very, teenage rebellion? Like I think so. And you know, I'm sure that that's also different in a different socioeconomic strata where mainstream culture, if it seems further away from what you're exposed to, mm-hmm. then perhaps mainstream culture does seem like it, like a mm-hmm. sort of type of rebellion. Versus, you know, mm-hmm. I grew up in a middle class, upper middle class mm-hmm. um, suburban neighborhood, so mainstream culture seemed like ah, oh, it was sort of so around that mm-hmm. anything. That's why I said things like comic books, things like yeah. uh, samurai movies, Japanese yeah. anime, like all of that thing was just sure. sort of something beyond something just right. different than you were kind of like Ducky in a John Hughes movie. Oh, if only. <laughs> I, ne- I never had the, uh, the patience the- or commitment to find like those kind of cool You were seeking uh, otherness. Yes. yes. But yes. And yeah. I, but I think that that's probably the same impulse when looking back, you know, f- instead of, you know, whatever would have been uh, in the movie theaters at the time, going back and watching The Onion Field. Right. But now I would look back and I would like, like saying, hey, Crazy For You is a great single. It's a great song. Like I couldn't say that then because yeah. to say that then would be a heresy against Absolutely. what you were supposed to think and feel, which was Madonna sucks, man. Yeah. At the time, I couldn't see that and experience that because I was too caught up in what I thought was cool. And probably wasn't cool. Somebody who's like <laughs> the biggest pop star, like the biggest pop star has got to suck because yeah. that's why they're the biggest. Well, right. You have that very reflexive attitude as a teenager. Well, so now you owe Madonna two apologies. What's the other one? For shitting on this I said she was beautiful. good in this movie. No, but this movie in general. Well, uh, she, sure she, it's not her fault. It is not it's, her fault. I know whose fault it is. Don't Would look like at me. here? Yes. Babalu Mandel <laughs> and Lowell Gantz. Oh, I should, have, I should have known that. It's their fault. It's not Penny Marshall's fault. I think yeah. Penny Marshall was moved by this source material and was making the movie for the right reasons. And I, I what I think is unfortunate is- I bet you there was a great story and a great movie to be made about these women's experiences playing in a largely male field, no pun intended. But this wasn't, this didn't end up being it. Without saying that this is a great movie, the fact that it is not weighted down, it is not um, portentous, it is not Mm. uh, taken up the- Is it portentous or portentous? I mean, I think they're both words. Are they? I think. Portentous? Not to derail like, you. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, That's his train. I'm having trouble finding the words anyway. Um, did not sort of play it as a... Sorry. Nope. Uh, uh, I was just playing... sound port- of being vindicated. Portentous. Yes. Uh, I've always said portentous. I'm wrong. This is a thing. This is part of my poor education. I thought portentous was a word. You Comes might, out, I'm just pretentious. I was. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of you to not point it out as long as you were. Anyway, I I did like the movie, and I thought the yeah. very fact that it was not a self consciously great movie that was not um, that it that it did not succeed. <laughs> <laughs> that it had such a light tone, and that it was mm-hmm. sort of shambling in all those ways. I actually thought I thought charming. I found it charming and moving. One of the things that I did like about the the women returning at the end of the old lady scenes mm-hmm. is you realize that this is like a section of their life sure. and, and that they had lives outside of it. And it doesn't seem like any of them are tortured or like, Oh, sure. I wish I could have played baseball the rest of my life. No, they were like, this was a great moment that we, and we got the best out of yeah. it. 
and then moved on and had more to our lives. I, agree. I, I think that's probably part of why for me. So it's like, if you look at it in context and you, you raise a good point, if you look at it in context, it was just an anomalous moment in time that could have been a year or two years or however long this league existed, right? It, it was just a, a blip. It wasn't like a, it wasn't a movement. It wasn't, right. a, it wasn't important in that regard. It's too little and, and, mm-hmm. and too much at the same time, you know, which is why when you have other baseball movies as a genre, I think that the ones that really work are either little in their own way, which means they're just about one finite thing like Moneyball or like Eight Men Out. Mm-hmm. Or they're grandiose, the field of dreams genre of baseball movie, which is mythical and sort mm-hmm. of swelled with its own Americana. portentiousness. <laughs> I th- Actually, I, I think I made that up. Portentiousness. I see, yeah. Portentousness. <laughs> portentousness. I'm never Portentious- gonna. I'm never gonna feel comfortable saying portentousness. No, I well, think, I I think I mean portentousness is, might not I be think a real what, word. I think what I mean to say is they're swelled with their own pretentiousness. Yes. Is what I mean to say. To me, this was sort of like I, I wanted to see. I wanted to see the documentary that it's based on. Mm -hmm. I bet that's probably really good. And I'm going to go see it.